0: It is a pleasure to open the Word of God to you this morning. And this morning we do want to go back to the text that was read to us earlier. The text that was read to us earlier is in the Old Testament, book of First Chronicles, chapter 17. Before we take a look at the text, uh, let me just mention something that maybe some of you are familiar with. And that is that 250 years ago, last week, on January 1st, 1773, John Newton, an Anglican minister, introduced to his congregation a hymn that he wrote. Do you know what hymn that is? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. What he did is he wrote the sermon and then he wrote a hymn to go along with the sermon. I don't have that skill. Well, I, I suppose I could try, but I don't think you'll sing it with me. Well, he wrote his sermon, and then he wrote this hymn. The original title was not Amazing Grace. It was a, a hymn that was designed to make the people of his congregation Look backwards at the year 1772 and see God's blessings, and then look forward to the year 1773 and see God's promises. And eventually the hymn made its way across the Atlantic Ocean to us. And Bruce Hindmarsh writes, "It didn't become a popular, it didn't become popular right away, but gradually it spread among churches of all denominations in America. It became a revival song on the western frontier and an African-American spiritual in black churches and a standard in the 20th century hymn books. And we all know it very well, don't we? Amazing Grace. Let me give you some tidbits, some, some facts about the hymn I think you'll find interesting. Facts about Amazing Grace, the hymn. First of all, the original title was Faith Faith's review and expectation. Not as catchy, is it? Faith's review and expectation. Again, looking back at what God did and looking forward to what God is going to do. Secondly, the Library of Congress in D.C. has a collection of over 3,000 recordings, 3,000 performances of Amazing Grace by different artists. I hope somebody's borrowing them and listening to them. Here's another interesting fact. Playing Amazing Grace on bagpipes is a recent innovation dating back to only 1972. Some of you are saying 1972, that was a long time ago. Not really, not if you were born in the 1960s. 1972 is when they first recorded Amazing Grace on the bagpipes. And get this, it was on the Billboard's top 40 hits for eight weeks Amazing Grace on bagpipes. Here's another fact. We do not know the original tune to Amazing Grace. We know the words, the lyrics, but we do not know the original tune. And here's another one. The hymn is extremely simple. 85% of that wonderful classic hymn, 85% are one-syllable words. Uh, Take a look at just the first sentence. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Ten out of the twelve words are just one syllable. And Amazing Grace was sung as an African-American spiritual, even though it was written by a former slave trader. That's right, uh, John Newton was a slave trader. He was a vile slave trader. I suppose they all were, but he was particularly a wretched man until, of course, he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and his life was literally, literally transformed. He became a completely different person and eventually ended up going to school, studying the scriptures, studying theology, and becoming a minister in the Church of Christ Great Britain. And so when John Newton writes uh, that God came to save a wretch like me, he was not exaggerating, (laughs) not at all. But when he writes those words, he's not simply writing about himself. He's also writing to his church there in England. He was speaking for everybody, but he was also speaking about us. You see, John Newton read his Bible, and he knew the condition of the human heart outside of Jesus Christ. We are all wretched, wretched without Jesus Christ. We are indeed depraved. Some display it more than others, but we're all spiritually dead. And so John Newton writes that God came to save a wretch, well, we could say, like us. Bruce Hindmarsh goes on to say, it has become the most popular and well-known hymn in the world. And it has gone not just wide, but deep. It's to this this song that people turn when tragedy strikes. When all hope is lost, what do we sing? Amazing grace. I'm sometimes surprised to see where amazing grace is played and by whom. People who have never thought of Christ or, or the grace of God But at the time of their deepest sorrow, what do they look to? God. They play amazing grace. Well, here's one last fact about the hymn. The story is actually, the hymn is actually the story, a mini biography of King David in 1 Chronicles 17. As I said, he wrote the sermon and then he wrote the hymn. And the sermon text that morning was 1 Chronicles 17, which is our text this morning as well. So let's go there to First Chronicles 17. Let's look, first of all, at the intentions of King David. I want to underscore the matter of joy. You know, last week we talked about joy, joy in the Christian life, how joy is not a secret We don't have to look deep and hard to find out how to be a joyful person. Uh, The scriptures are rather clear on how to be joyous. Uh, Sometimes we close our eyes to that reality, but the scriptures are clear. Uh, We can be joyful people, even in the midst of the most uh, grave circumstances. I want you to see the joy of this one person, David. At this point, he is a king. He's the king over Israel. I want you to see his joy. Uh, By the way, you could see the same story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's a parallel passage. 2 Samuel chapter 7 tells you the same story. So you can follow along in 1 Chronicles 17, but if you're more daring, go over to 2 Samuel 7. I would stick to 1 Chronicles, but you can do likewise and you'll see the same account. Notice here David's intention. It begins right there with verse 1. David compares the grandeur of his own house. He says, I live in a beautiful place with cedar paneling. And today when we think of cedar paneling, we probably think of the 1970s. Uh, We don't do too much cedar paneling anymore. But in the days of David, uh, this was beauty. This was prosperity. Especially if you're living in a an arid country like he was. And he says, look at my residence. It's beautiful. But look at the Ark of the Covenant. Look at the dwelling place of God. It's a tent. The Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. Meanwhile, look at me. Look at all the beauty. Look at the splendor that I have. And so David wants to build, for the worship of God, he wants to build this grand building. He says, if my house is beautiful, God's house should be even more beautiful. And he wants to build this grand building in order to house the Ark of the Covenant, where God had made himself present or known to the people of God. Now notice here, I think this is important, that God does see our good intentions. God looks at his servants, and even though we are hardly perfect, God does see our good intentions, and, and he, he accepts he, uh, the, the fact that we are devoted and, and we love him. Uh, he appreciates that. He sees that. Uh, he wants that. Uh, he, he appreciates our desire to serve him. And yet it was not for David to build the temple. He wanted to. God is grateful. But the prophet Nathan makes it clear, in verse 4 He tells David, this is what the Lord has said. It is not you who will build a house to dwell in. It is not you who will build me a house for me to dwell in. Now maybe David, if he was just a regular person, would have taken offense. Well, why not me? But that's not what David does. He accepts what God said through the prophet. And he understands that he is simply going to make preparations for the temple. He is not going to build that temple. It's similar to what Moses did, correct? Uh, Moses took the people to the very border of the promised land, but he did not actually take them into the promised land. Joshua would have to do that. And so here we see that it will not be David who will build the temple, but it will be his son Solomon after David is gone. When Solomon is king, he is going to build the grand temple. And in fact, if you read on in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8, God explains to David why, why he is not going to be the one to build the temple. And this is what it reads. It says, to David, you have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. David's background of shedding blood during wartime was God's reason for why he would not build the temple, rather Solomon would. God repeats the same thing in chapter 28, verse 3. God wanted a man of peace to build the temple, not a man of war. And God's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. You'll recall Isaiah 56, 7 tells us. But instead... Instead of David building a house for God, look at what we see beginning at verse 5. Instead, God is going to build a house for David. God's going to build a house for David. In all the long history of the tabernacle, God makes it very clear, verse 5, that God never chastised, never insisted, never requested, never required that the people of Israel build him a temple. He said, no, this is what I want. I want this tabernacle. And yes, it was rustic, but this is what God said he wanted. And that's what they built for him, and God said this is good. And so, David, you don't have to say, I'm going to build you a temple, because God never requested that or required it. But looking at verse 7, you see that God has been very intentional. Intentional in the life of David. There's a particular purpose that God is going to carry out. And I point this out, not only because it's in the text, but I want you to know that if God has redeemed your soul, he's got a purpose for you as well. He's very intentional with you. We don't live haphazardly. God is not just letting you be and do whatever it is you want to do. He's got a purpose for you. He's got a a reason for why you are here on this earth. There's a reason for why he redeemed your soul and he's very intentional with David. In verse 7, he says, "I took you from being a shepherd in the pasture to being a prince over Israel." David, it says here, you went from following sheep to leading a nation. <laughs> what a difference. Verse 8, it tells David that I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have stopped enemies from destroying you. And in fact, here, verse 8, God makes it clear that he is going to make David's name a great name, comparable to other great historical figures. And look, we're still talking about David. Today. We read about him. God indeed has made David into a great figure in history. And we see that God will be with Israel as well. Not only will I be with you, David, but I will be with your nation. Verses 9 and 10, God explains that he's going to provide a permanent place for them. Just as David wanted to provide a permanent house for God, God says, I'm going to provide a permanent place for you. A safe place for them. And look at verse 10 in particular. God will build David a house. Look at how it reads. Verses 10 and then 11. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. And then he explains why. Verse 11. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, in other words, when you die and you're in a grave with your fathers, your ancestors, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, And I will establish his kingdom. Verse 12, you see God's promise. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Oh, that's quite the promise, isn't it? He will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And here at verse 12, my friends, we begin to see the messianic overtones of God's promise. God will build the house of David and Solomon, David's son, is going to build a house for God. But notice here something I think should strike us, should make us scratch our heads. How is it that the throne of David's son is going to endure forever? Now notice it didn't say for a few centuries, but forever Obviously, we have here more than just a human monarchy. It's a reign that's going to last forever. Uh, Of course, we're all aware that uh, Queen Elizabeth died this past fall, was it? No, past summer, past fall. And after 70 years of reigning in a British throne, the longest reigning British monarch, 70 years. But she does not hold the record in terms of recorded monarchies. The longest reigning monarchy was... Of the French king, Louis XIV, who reigned for 72 years. Of course, he took the throne at the age of four. <laughs> for 72 years, he reigned as the king over France. But this here, what God is promising to David, to David's lineage, is a throne, a monarchy, a reign that's going to last forever forever and ever, and ever. Look at verse 13. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. Referring to Saul. And here we see, once again, an allusion to David's son, Solomon. But there's more than just an allusion to Solomon. Here it says that there's going to be a father and son relationship will be established between the king and God. And and it's going to be a love between God the Father and what we learn is God the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're not just talking here about Solomon, who abandoned God, but rather a relationship between God the Father and the Messiah, Jesus. Speaking not just of Solomon's future, but here we see the promise of the coming Messiah who will come from, who did come from the lineage of David. God fulfilled his covenant promise. From what lineage did uh, did Jesus Christ come from? From the lineage of King David. Through Mary. Now, it just so happens that Joseph was also from that lineage, but Joseph was not really the father of Christ. He raised Christ, but he was not the father. Mary was a virgin, and she was from the lineage of David. And so, this covenant that's made here, verses 12, 13, is the Davidic covenant. It is the covenant that explains to us the coming and the promise of the Savior. God's love will persevere to this monarch. In fact, here it says, in my version, the English Standard Version, it says, God's steadfast love. And I think that speaks for itself. I don't know why the ESV decided to render this Hebrew word as steadfast. Other translations use the word loving kindness. And and in my understanding, that seems to be a better translation, the loving kindness of God. The same loving kindness that he gave to Saul for a time. The idea here is that God's love is going to persevere upon this one who fulfills this promise, this prophecy. God's love is going to persevere over the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the eternal monarch. This coming monarch is the Savior. Uh, He is going to be far more, far greater than the fallible Solomon who, again, abandoned God, he is going to be the God-man. He will be 100% God, divine, and he will be 100% human. We call this what, theologically, do you recall? The hypostatic union, where two natures come together in one person. We each here have one nature, the human nature. Christ had both the divine and human nature. Why did he have to be human? Well, he had to be human and come from the lineage of David in order to represent mankind at the cross. In order to die for mankind, he had to be human. And he had to be divine in order to be able to die for mankind. You see, only a perfect, sinless one could die on our behalf. In that sense, he had to be divine. He had to be God. And so Christ comes. And in verse 14, there's a confirmation of all this. Verse 14 reads, "But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." So what we say, see and sing at Christmas time from the book of Isaiah, "And he shall reign for how long? forever and ever, right? And indeed, today, Christ is still reigning as he's building his kingdom, a kingdom without borders, yes, but a kingdom that reigns in us, among us, his people. He reigns in you. His throne shall be established forever. Again, this is, my friends, the Davidic covenant. And there are various covenants that God made with the patriarchs, and they're all similar, and they are all part of this same Davidic covenant. Now, as David listens to what the prophet is saying, what God is saying through Nathan the prophet to him, David understands that there's something happening here that stretches beyond the norm. Look look at the, the, the phrases that are being used. It says, an everlasting kingdom or reign. That's not normal. There's going to be a father-son and relationship between God and a man. Now keep in mind that in the Old Testament, seldom do we see God being referred to as Father. That is a New Testament expression, by and large. Prior to the New Testament, seldom do we see God being referred to as Father. So this would have been new language to David. We see here a never-ending and enduring purposeful love for this monarch of the future. And David is saying, this is not exactly what I was thinking. He's not talking just about my son Solomon. And this king would possess a permanent status over God's people. Look at how David responds, and that's what I really want you to see this morning. I find this portion of the text to be extremely interesting, but what I want you to see is David's response. Here we see the purpose-filled grace of God. The purpose-filled grace of God, and I would suggest to you that it is indeed amazing. David did. Look at the grace of God. God's grace, beginning at verse 16, and it extends down to verse 20. And so, in response to all this, having heard from the prophet Nathan, what does David do? He enters into the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he sits down. You see, he's overwhelmed. He's taken aback by what he just heard, the prophecy that was spoken. And we see here that David now addresses God. Uh, In answer to God's gracious message about David and his lineage, he, he asks God two questions. Verse 16, he says, Who am I that you would elevate me to these heights? Who am I that you would do this for me? That you would lift me up? Now, far different than many other kings we've met. One more recently president who would have said, well, of course me. Who else? Not David. Who am I that you would elevate me to these heights? And then he says, and what is my house? What is my family, my lineage, that you would elevate us to these heights? And so at verse 17, he says, You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. You see, David is struck by what God is doing, by what God is promising when he compares the humble origins of his own life. When he looks at himself, he says, Lord, I I can't believe you're doing this for me. Remember what God had just told him in verse 7? He said, listen, you were following sheep. I made you a prince. And now I'm going to make your house a perpetual monarchy. In your family will come the eternal king of kings. And David is just astounded. He doesn't know what to say, verse 18. He doesn't know how to express himself. How can I better honor God in light of how he's honored me? He says, you know me, Lord, and yet you bless me. You know my heart, and still you're going to bless me? My friends, how often do you think like that? I know it's not natural to us. Usually we think quite differently. Lord, you know my heart. Why don't you bless me more? (laughs) And the reason we say that is because we don't know our hearts very well. David said, Lord, you know my heart, and still you bless me. (laughs) What words can I say to express my gratitude? I am struck with wonder. My my heart is filled with gratitude. This is all a great mystery to me is what he's expressing to God at this verse. Why would you do this for me? I want you to see his humility in all this. Uh, There's a deep sense of unworthiness. In, In response, see how Hi, David elevates God. Look at how David admires God's willingness to lower himself to David and to show David his favor. David doesn't elevate him to God and say, look at me, I'm pretty good, I think you'd agree. No, he says, God, that you would come down to me? And he expresses this deep, sincere, and devout love and appreciation for God. And and he magnifies him. He is saying, what amazing grace. How sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me. And let me point out this too. I think this is important. As David is listening to the words of God, he has full assurance. He fully believes that God is going to keep God's word. He doesn't say, well, I'm not so sure. Well, maybe. Let's see what happens. No, David truly believes the words of God. Full assurance. Faith in God. In God's words. He knows that though it seems impossible, For God, all things are possible except for one thing. God cannot lie. And therefore he knows God will keep his word. What an example of believing, faith-filled prayer. And so verse 19 and 20 read this way. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There's none like you, O Lord, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Now notice two things here. David says, For the sake of David, your servant, you have done this. And, number two, according to God's desire. You've done this on my behalf, But you've done it according to your own desire. My friends, God works according to his own plans and purposes. According to his own desires. And he benefits you through it. What he has done for David, he does for us. He works according to his own purposes. He does not consult us. We cannot twist his arm and say, this is what you need to do. We don't want to do that. God works according to his purpose and he blesses you through it. David makes that absolutely clear in these two verses. He does not work, God does not work according to David's wishes or his plans or what David merits. Notice that it is this reality of God, this truth that God is there, that God interacts with his people. Back then, as much as today, my friends, God is in your life, and he is looking to interact in your life. Look to him and seek his finger in your life. Because it is this presence of God in your life, in the life of David, that enables us to seek him and compels us to seek him. God's presence interacting in your home in your life is what compels you to seek him and allows you to seek him don't ignore it it's a beautiful thing when we see god's hand in our lives i mean it's there constantly we just tend to overlook it it is a wonderful thing when you are able to see god moving in your circumstances at times you wonder what are you doing lord this is not what I planned, God. This is not the way I would have done it, Jesus. But I assure you, God is working in the life of his saints. Are you there with him? Are you with him? Are you working with him in his plan for your life? I have four observations I want to point out to you. I have much more to say, but I want to point out these four observations. First of all, first of all look at this one. David understands that he is not worthy, but he accepts it. He accepts God's grace. He realizes, I'm not worthy, but I do accept it. I remember my wife was having a conversation with a woman once who asked her, well, how can I come to a saving knowledge of Christ? And my wife simply explained to her, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And she said, oh, no, that's too simple. That's too easy. And she never came to Christ. In fact, last I heard, her life is in a disastrous, tumultuous condition. David heard, and he believed, and he accepted it. Second observation. David realizes that God is bowing to his needs, and he's humbled by it. He's humbled by it. Observation number three, David is extremely grateful to God for giving him what he did not deserve. He is humbled, he is grateful. When God gives to him grace, what he doesn't deserve. And number four, as I just mentioned, David believes that God is speaking the truth and that God is going to keep his promise. These are four observations for us. Four lessons for us. Well, finally, let me take a closer look at this amazing grace that God also gives to each one of us who turn to him. Now, notice here something drastically different between us and David. In David's case, God said that he would build a house for David, right? That there would be a lineage of uh, of reigning from uh, in. in in David's household, leading, of course, to the Christ. But here, God has not promised that our lineage would be perpetually reigning. God has not said that you are going to be of that lineage. Instead, this is what God has promised to us. God has promised that he would place you in his perpetual lineage. That God would place you in his family. That you would become a child of God. That He would place you in His house. You know, the the popularity of the hymn, Amazing Grace, as I said before, is a mini biography. But it's first a mini biography of the life of David. What we see here in that hymn, Amazing Grace, is this story, 1 Chronicles 17. That's why Newton wrote the hymn. He was preaching from this text. I think one of the best definitions of God's grace is that old Sunday school definition, which reads that grace is God's riches for you at Christ's expense. What is grace? Grace is God's riches to you at the expense of Jesus Christ. That's grace. And I believe that's what makes it so amazing that it was at the expense of God and not ours, that God gave to us what we simply did not deserve, and he gave it to us freely. And as a result of that, you are placed into the family of God. The resurrected Christ now reigns forever in you. It's the fulfillment of the the Davidic covenant in, in us. My friends, grace is the exact opposite of what we deserved. That's why it's amazing. When was the last time somebody gave you the exact opposite of what you deserved? Certainly your your employer didn't. Well, you didn't show up all this week, but we're going to pay you double. Oh, you didn't do your chores, but that's okay. We're going to reward you as if you did. No, no, that doesn't happen. At least it shouldn't. But when it comes to God, to us, it happens because that's His purpose. Now, Timothy George explains the effects of this amazing grace in the acronym ROSES, R O S E S. It's not as good as TULIP, T U L I P, but ROSES works as well. And this is what George writes. He writes R, radical depravity. O, Overcoming grace. S. Sovereign election. E. Eternal life. S. Singular redemption. This is the result of grace in us. We begin with this radical depravity where we are dead spiritually and it is his grace that overcomes even that depravity. And because God chose to save you, even as he chose to use David, he chooses to save you, we can then have, you can have eternal life. All because of the singular death of one single man, Jesus Christ, on behalf of you. a once and for all, redemption. It's amazing. In his sermon, John Newton wrote this, God found us upon the dunghill and made us companions of princes. In a wilderness is where God found us and has led us to the city of God. By the way, we we printed his sermon, Newton's original sermon, in your worship folder as it was written in his notebook for you. You might want to read it. My friends, having said all this, let me just point out one last element this morning in regards to this amazing grace. At times, God's amazing grace ceases to be amazing. We're no longer awestruck by it. Notice here that David was. Obviously, I'm trying to remind you that you ought to be as well. I want you to see how amazing that grace is. But there is a danger that as we grow in our time in Christ... We begin to lose our amazement over the grace of God. And here are four dangers, four dangers of no longer being amazed by grace. And the first one is this, that God's grace becomes too common in our lives. God's presence in your life has become so common, so usual, that it doesn't strike awe in you anymore. You have forgotten those days in which you said, that's who I used to be, and boy, was that awful. And yet God saved me. It's no longer that way of thinking anymore. And you develop this casual familiarity with the the divine. Keep in mind that David was humbled by the grace of God to him. God's saving grace in you is never a neutral reality. It should stir you every day. Whenever you wake up and put your feet on the floor, God's saving grace should stir in your heart. Never get too used to the grace of God. Here's a second danger. The danger that you would begin to think that you actually deserve God's grace Many of us, as we are more seasoned Christians, begin to think, well, I kind of deserved it. After all, look at me. Your idea of yourself is higher than what it ought to be then. So grace simply doesn't glow like it used to because you think you actually deserve it. You feel you've earned God's favor. Note here that in our text, David understood that he was not worthy of God's grace but he did accept it. Here's danger number three. You begin to disrespect grace. And this is a big one, a very common one. You willingly ignore God's word, figuring that the more you sin, well, the more grace you're going to get. Is that true? (laughs) It is. If you sin 10 times, God will give you 10 times worth of grace. If you sin a million times, God's going to give you a million times worth of grace. But only because God is gracious to you and your deepest deepest and gravest of sins doesn't give us permission to sin. In fact, Romans chapter 6 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He answers, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You know, um being familiar with God's grace can very much produce contempt towards God's grace. Do not think that only because God will forgive you, and he will, only because God will be gracious to you that you are then allowed to sin. It's okay. No, that's a disrespect of God's grace. David was extremely grateful to God for giving him what he did not deserve beware, be careful that you do not disrespect God's grace and here's one last danger you begin to question because God's grace is so familiar to you it's become so ho-hum in your life you begin to question God's goodness or God's ability to keep his promises and maybe this is the most common of these four dangers, I don't know we begin to question whether or not God is actually going to keep his word despite his record, despite what the Bible says, despite all that we know about God. We begin to question, Lord, are you really going to be there for me when I need you? Are you really going to see me through? Is your word really the principle I need to live out by? Because, you know, by my judgment, my way is going to work better than yours. So do you really expect me to do what you said we begin to question the word of God. We begin to question the promises of God. Keep in mind, once again, my friends, that David believed that God was speaking the truth and that God would keep his promises, and we need to do likewise. These words are inscribed in the scriptures for us, for a purpose, to us for a purpose, so that we would follow the example of David. So in closing... Do not lose your amazement of God's grace. Remember that grace is extraordinary. Don't ever treat grace as if it's nothing special. Don't think that you deserve God's grace. Don't disrespect grace by abusing it with more sin. And trust that the Lord will keep his promises to his children. And grace will stay amazing. You'll be amazed by it. Are you amazed today? Can you say right now, I find God's grace amazing? Or has it become ho-hum? If it's become ho-hum, then begin to pray, oh Lord, amaze me again. Amaze me again. And put these principles into practice and you'll be stirred to live for Christ from Monday to Monday to Sunday, again and again and again. Let me pray. O oh Lord, our God. When we stand before the awesome things you have done, when we consider the things you have created, the promises you have fulfilled, the works you have done in our own experiences. We are taken aback and we can't cry out how great you are. And we pray, Lord, that never would we stop being amazed by your grace. That we would see daily, continuously, the beauty, the splendor. And the reality that you gave to us what we certainly did not deserve. And you chose us to be in your house, to be your children. For that, we thank you and praise your wondrous name. Amen.